Well, welcome, everyone. Um, I'm Professor Shira West. I'm head of the Humanities Division, um, and I'm, be, I'm the chair in, the, in introducing our speaker tonight. It's a really great pleasure to welcome you all to Erdogan House and, um, this evening, and I hope you've all had a very wonderful time being out in this garden and enjoying this beautiful building and the wonderful surroundings here. Um, I'm going to introduce our speaker in a little bit, but what I would like to do, first of all, is to hand over to Dr. Brian Ward-Perkins, who is the director of the um, Ertigan program, and let him say a few words before I introduce our speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Shira, and thank you all for coming. It's a real pleasure and a real honour to be here. Um, I was charged with trying to make the Ertigan program work and to make Ertigan House work, but it's an extremely simple job. Uh, Mika had a wonderful vision, which was to generously fund graduate studentships in the humanities, because she believes in the humanities, as I hope we all do, uh, and then to give them a superb place to work, which has a friendly, comfortable, caring environment, and also to set up a budget which would allow them to run events of their own. And seven months ago, we started. We thought it would work, but we didn't know. But it really has worked. It's been wonderful. I've enjoyed it hugely. It's been a huge privilege and an enormous pleasure to me to be running this program. And I expect it to last for a thousand years, at least. So thank you all very much for coming, and thank you, Mika, for your vision and your generosity. Thank you very much for that, Brian. Um, I have to say it's a great honour for me to introduce our speaker this evening, uh, Sir John Richardson. I'm an art historian myself, and um, I'm a great fan of Sir John's work and all he's done throughout his remarkable career. Um, he's one of um, Britain's and the USA's most eminent art historians, and his passion and scholarship have been hugely influential over the past 60 years, um, which is an amazing um, a sort of a tribute to his um, contribution. Um, he's, he was a friend and a sitter for both Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud. And what many of you probably know is that he was the former Slade professor here at the university when, this, when he was actually working in the Ashmolean at the time. So we've got the Slade, our current Ruskin school, and the Ashmolean all working together there. And among many achievements, Sir John is perhaps best known for his seri series of seminal writings on Picasso, of which the fourth and final volume is eagerly awaited. Now, we're thrilled that Sir John is going to speak about Picasso tonight. And he's joined in conversation, and this is going to be a really interesting double act we're going to have tonight, which we're really looking forward to with Geist von Hensbergen, who's his collaborator here. And uh, I, I'm very excited to see how the two of you are going to do this together, and I'm sure we all are. Um, Geist is an art historian well known for his own work on both Picasso and Gaudi. 
and he's collaborating with Sir John on, on his current work on Picasso. And Geis has participated in a number of television projects, including writing the script for the Discovery Channel's Raiders of the Lost Ark series. I'm right about that. That's what I'm... <laughs> right, okay. Um, I'm also reliably informed that Geis devoted five years of his life to becoming a specialist on the culinary preparation of the suckling pig. Is that also right? That is correct. Okay, good. I'm glad. Um, but I don't... I don't know if you're going to be able to work that into your talk tonight on Picasso, but we will see. Without further ado, it's great, my great pleasure to introduce Geist von Hensbergen and Sir John Richardson. Thank you. Uh, do we have... Is that all right? Are you picking me up now? Yep. Well, welcome to a mixture between... I mean, it is an extraordinary... Venture Black Mountain College and Bauhaus brought to Europe, <laughs> and this kind of mixing of all the different humanities so that one bounces off the other. And just one thing I want to warn, particularly the Erskine scholars, about John is 90 years young. <laughs> and in the last few years, spending a lot of time with John in his apartment in, in, in New York that capacity for always going for the young and going for the new and supporting younger artists and writing about them, that's, that's remarkable. And what I also find utterly fascinating, of course, in our work with the Picasso is John as the great code breaker because Picasso doesn't give away his secrets easily. And every time we focus on something and we're sitting there and suddenly the kind of... it is. We have these Damascus moments every so often, Pauline moments, where, where suddenly there's something illuminating and just suddenly flashes. Um, and that I find permanently exciting. Uh, one of my rituals uh, is this rather wonderful photograph. It's actually quite small, but it was a gift from Picasso directly to John, uh, and choosing somebody that clearly meant a huge amount to him in his youth. So to give this photograph and to sign it the way that it has been, uh, pour John mon ami aussi, kind of putting him back because those were the friends that he valued above all others almost, those that had the kind of track record, and he was slipping John, knocking or adding an extra 60 years to him and putting him back into his... Childhood. I mean, that's fair to say, isn't it, John? Yes. I mean, what's so marvellous is, is, is to see Casa Jamas, who we'll soon see again on his deathbed. I mean, this crazy, lively character, and who uh, and Picasso is sort of dancing away in front on the roofs, rooftops in, in Barcelona. And um, he, these were his two closest friends in the days of El Catragats, in, in the early days in Barcelona. And he fished this photograph out from somewhere. Oh, no, I found it in Barcelona, and I showed it to him, and he immediately put in this, this, this inscription, which really sort of helped me enormously. Mind. I really felt that you know, he was in there and, and um, helping me all he could. And, and then it did result, of course, in a whole lot of s stories about these characters, which we haven't got time to do today, but were all outrageous and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and sad, and also ending up in Casa Jameis's suicide uh, a few months after that was taken. 
And here we come to, the, to the, this amazing painting that he did of Casajemus on his deathbed. And I think the bullish shot is, is in, in there. And, um, and, and what I did is I put it next to an image which goes right back to the 17th century uh, by a sculptor called Gregorio Hernández, a Spaniard, who believed that the image was so powerful and that art meant so much that if you touched the image, it would heal you, that equally it was almost like the artist a shaman. Uh, the artist had to go back to his work every three months to celebrate mass to recharge it. I mean, what an extraordinary idea, and that's something which then Picasso takes on for the rest of his life. I mean, again, this idea of trying to break through the codes. I mean, this is the kind of game-playing that John and I have been mm. up to uh, over the last three years, is really trying to work out all these different ways of seeing things. And it started, of course, with John's first encounter with Picasso. I mean, the first well, one that really mattered, no? But what I think is, is, is also important is the way Picasso found different ways of imbuing a subject with magic. I mean, sometimes it's a perfectly straightforward still life. You think, what's going on in this painting? I mean, it's, it, it's a, a bowl of fruit, a, a bottle, this, that, and the other jug. And it has some, uh, and it, he's like a, sometimes like a theatrical director, directing the light in certain ways, just to changing the mood. And you'll suddenly find that, that very often there is different ways, but one is the, the table turns out to be a sort of altar, or there's some sort of sacred thing which gives these stupid, dumb bowls of fruit and so on, some kind of enormously grave and miraculous character. And this happens again and again. Uh, uh, throughout his work. John, when was it really that you've, or that you got a sense that the, it was far more than just a, a friendship or just a meeting? I mean, did he ever ask you, you know, for your opinion? I mean, how old were you when you met him? Oh, Lord, I was, I was about 30, I suppose, 28 or 30. Uh, he never asked money. He, 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 all he wanted to know is, with, he'd show you things. I think he'd test you. He, he, he very often worked in in, in um, will be 10 or 12 uh, uh, big heads of Francoise or, or Dora, whatever it was. But you'd say, he's just done these, and look at them. Which do you think is the le plus fort, which is the strongest? He didn't want which was the sort of, which you liked the most. And uh, he did this to me quite often, and I thought, why is he so interested? I think he wanted, he wanted I, I think I was being tested, and occasionally he'd say, okay, it's yours. And that was um, uh, very enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then in one case, I was there with my friend Douglas Cooper. Douglas Cooper always, always chose the most sort of uh, decorative. I mean, and, and, and there was a, it, the most expensive looking with a lot of <laughs> stuff going on in it and so on. And... Uh, and there's one wonderful occasion when um, the, that American uh, dealer came who gave him a card, you remember, and he got a lot of pictures in exchange. And he arrived with his wife. And uh, Picasso said, I'm bored to these people. I, they're coming, they're begging for more paintings. I'm not going to give it to them. And um, so um, uh, he said, I've just, look what I've just given Douglas. Given Douglas. They immediately look very sad, like people being given things. And... So Picasso said, I didn't think it was good enough for him, so I've added some yellow and some pink and some red. Look, I mean, it's getting richer and richer and more valuable by the minute. <laughs> and, uh, 
And then, out of the corner of his eye, he saw, suddenly saw the wife going. <laughs> he said, oh, you've got a hairdresser's appointment. I'm so sorry I didn't mean to keep you. Go, of course, go. And uh, I, I think divorce ensued after that. <laughs> she was thrown out. But there was always going to see Picasso. There was just full of full of these instances of of, of uh, Picasso sort of subtly uh, uh, arranging things and and um, getting things to work in some surprising way. This is such a great pho- photograph. Of him. Did, I mean, did were the eyes like that, John? I mean, was it completely hypnotic? Did you feel kind of yeah? Well, I mean, but he didn't sort of uh, <laughs> pop his eyes at you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> we, we know some members that do. But. Yes, no, I mean, he, they just were there. and, and um, uh, But he was... Uh, he... he well, I mean, it's, it, when, when I was doing a little bit of promo work for this, John, I tweeted and I said that it was like going under an MRI scanner of the soul. Is that, is that over-egging it? No, I think that I think that I think that's tr- very true. Because he got he got you he caught you one day and he almost reduced you to to, to I mean the tears started welling up because you thought as a young man that finally you had passed. Is that right? Yes. Well, what what was a, a problem with uh, with knowing Picasso was was um, uh, you 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 knew you were going to be in some ways manipulated. I mean, it, it, his friendship was all about manipulations, good manipulation, there's bad manipulation. <laughs> I had to go, get myself in a position of good manipulation. <laughs> I was good at that. And, um, and somehow, I mean, we, we hit it off, but, but um, uh, he... he um, uh, what's, the next, what's the next slide? Well, it's, it's, it's this uh, one... Now we're going to, yes, because we're going to jump ahead to to um, a series of paintings which I'm very fascinated by. Uh, as you all know, Picasso, there's a series of women in Picasso's life. And uh, he ma- got married to a Russian woman, a uh, um, uh, uh, ballet dancer, one of Diaghilev's ballet dancers. In, he, we met in 1917, and he, he married later that year. And uh, she was a beautiful woman. She was not a super good dancer, but she was a sort of a secondary one, and enormously respectable and dainty and, and uh, all the things that Picasso didn't really like, <laughs> and uh, uh, as he found out so- soon into marriage. And uh, he, uh, she tried and succeeded to some extent in changing his way of life from being a bohemian in Montmartre and uh, leading a very kind of wild, but not so well life, because Picasso was enormously careful never to he never got drunk he drank very little he drugged very little he liked opium a bit he said he told me once he said i like opium because it's got the most intelligent of odors and uh that's a good excuse and uh uh and um he he um uh, anyway, he 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 didn't uh, do any any of these things, and uh, the wife got more and more genteel, and you know gave nice little uh, dinners 
uh, after the theater with a nice butler and, and so on. It bored him to tears. I mean, he wanted to be out in the cafes and, and get away from her. So it didn't last very well, and they had a child, uh, son, Polo, uh, difficult child, and uh, Polo adored his father and loathed his mother, and uh, Picasso liked it that way. <laughs> and um, he encouraged, I think, encouraged him a bit. And uh, so on the side, there were a series of mistresses. And in those days, above all the surrealists, used to, to um, uh, wander at night, you know, the, the Grand Boulevard, and picking up girls. And uh, Picasso followed them. Uh, they all, and they'd all come back with some sort of, the ideal was a sort of, 18-year-old orphan, very beautiful, a little insane, desperately needed um, help of some kind or another, or encouragement, or or, or something else, and um, <laughs> uh, and so he went off and near the uh, garage Lafayette. He found this very nice. He really was lucky. I mean, she's a great girl. She's strong and healthy. She bicycled. She kayaked. She she she. Ran. She she loves to swim, uh, and um, and sh she fell madly in love with him. Uh, although she was she wasn't quite seventeen, all that had to be hidden rather carefully, and and was hidden until fairly recently. But this but this wonderful image, John, is is a kind of depiction of her her near death. Well, yes. Well, this this painting. She uh, she and her family lived by the Marne. Uh, in, in a little house, and she loved to kayak, she loved to swim, and one day she's kayaking, and then there's, it's, it's these huge oars and things got tangled with some water weeds, to overturned, and she nearly drowned, and she got a horrible infection from the rats in the river, and her hair fell out. And uh, the whole series of paintings, and she is rescuing herself, it's, 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 she did have sisters, but in fact it's, it's, it's that, that she and her sister and they go on, and then there's another Marie Therese down in the corner. And sometimes there's a whole picture filled with Marie Therese. Some are swimming around, and some are rescuing each other. It, it, it becomes a sort of theme and goes on and on and on through. Uh, it, this happened in 32, November 32. But I mean, still three years later, he's, he's, he's using it, and uses, using it it sort of helps with, with uh, sculpture because um, the, some of, uh, he, the, the, it enabled him uh, to s somehow to sculpt women without having all that hair to play, play around with. And, yeah. uh, what? <laughs> but yeah. um, just, just moving on, because Picasso now goes to Spain. He doesn't know that it's going to be his last visit. And 34... It, uh, it turns out to be the last time he ever goes to Spain. Um, he comes back in '34. The government has gone from the, the Silver Age, that is wonderful Spain of the intellectuals like García Lorca, and now changes to the right wing are back in power again. The left have splintered. They let the right in. And he comes back to France and he paints this image, which I remember seeing this and, and looking over it because... The daughter engraves this image. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Sorry, and the the looking over this with Maya, the daughter of Marie Therese and Picasso, and she said, "Can you imagine 
having a father like that? And I said, well, not really, no. Um, <clears throat> um, he says, the first time I've ever been depicted in an etching or, or any image, I'm not yet born, but I'm there in the pregnant stomach of the female bullfighter who is dragged over the back of the horse there in the centre of the painting, and you can see the little belly button and she's swollen, and it's the right date for her to be three or four months pregnant. So can you imagine a father like that? Uh, and, um, but that was the moment also that we started noticing other things that were going on, that this was politics is now beginning to creep in, because, of course his country is kind of dissolving and disintegrating into this terrible civil war. So we kind of move on, and he makes this incredible painting. And John, I mean, you're still... I think it's the weakest painting he ever painted, a major painting, and, but it comes as a complete mystery. It's in a style unlike his, his style, and uh, it's quite large, and it's sort of, in his oeuvre, it, it has no real place. And it's the, except that, it's the last painting he did before he stopped painting and, and gave it up for poetry. And um, I'm baffled by this painting. Uh, it's, uh, but, uh, it, because it's very clearly influenced by Georges Latour, who was very, Georges Latour had become a hot painter in the, in the, in the mid-30s. I think there was a big retrospective. And Béra, I mean, all those sort of, um, uh, sort of Béra-like like painters stole from, from Georges Latour. And this is a, sort of sad. It's, uh, uh, and why he does this just before he stops painting for a year is... is is fascinating. If anybody has a suggestion as to <laughs> what it is, I'd be very welcome. Well, I, I think it's an essay in kind of total banality. It's almost as if he's painting the idea that painting now doesn't mean anything more to him because he's kind of run out mm. of all the, all the different styles and he's going back almost as if it were to kill it off so that he can start it's, the it's, it's a dumb painting. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's um, consciously a dumb and, painting. And, and he then... I mean, he says to somebody, I've forgotten who it is, he says, when I die, I want to have on my tombstone Picasso, poet, sometime painter. And he rated himself, and in fact, his status as a, as a poet is, is growing. And I just put a poem up, because I, I mean, it's totally kind of Rabelaisian. It's so, so beautiful. It's kind of Hieronymus Bosch mixed with Bruegel, but all in words, because he was now working out that sometimes with words you can actually create the image even faster than doing it manually, uh, even though he had such kind of... So I'll just read you the last few lines, because they're quite prophetic in many ways. Cuando pasa la flecha tan veloz, when the arrow was shot so fast, and then he adds, que el obispo mea, so the bishop pissed himself, <laughs> la echa su pimienta y su sal, he threw in his pepper and his salt, lee el porvenir en el ojo del toro, and reads the future in the eye of the bull. I mean, these wonderful kind of things that are building up on top of each other, and, and obviously so prophetic if we go forward here. This is when he starts again, John. This is a period that well, you had the show in New York. Yeah. Well, what happens here, it's, it, it, after his year without uh, doing poetry as opposed to painting, he, he takes a, a house for April in 1936. Uh, Marie has just had the baby. And uh, he takes her down there, and he gets his, 
the people who he gets all his colors and canvases from, to send down rolls of paper, pastel, engraving tools, the whole lot. And he sets about repainting. And he does, he sort of redoes all his previous styles in the space of a month. And they're amazing paintings. He redoes the, the, the Manitores with, 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 without her hair. And then, most of all, he does, this is him, as he's always the Minotaur. And it's the Minotaur moving house. He's just managed to get a separation from uh, his wife, Olga. And, uh, uh, and the, the separation was particularly uh, unpleasant and dramatic because he wanted to divorce her. But divorce in Spain, uh, a divorce in France for a Spaniard involved the divorce laws of Spain. And there was only a sort of short, small window uh, when uh, he could have done it and he missed the, the little window when, uh, which was after the king was thrown out and before the, the, the Francoists took over. And um, so uh, one day, I mean, he, instead of getting a divorce, he gets a separation and the huissiers, the, the, um, bailiffs. the bailiffs come in and they put seals on everything. And because he's absolutely horrified what he's done. I mean, he's destroyed his head, can't work, which is one of the reasons why I think he gave up painting for, for, um, for, 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 for poetry. And so uh, he, uh, this is really all about the, the Minotaur moves house. He's got to get out of his house. He just bought a, five years earlier, bought a chateau, uh, which he loved and where he'd made a lot of sculpture. And this is the Minotaur. Here he is with, with all his stuff. And the reference to the girl he's the, 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 who's just had his baby, is, is, isn't there a foal, I think, dropping Yes, out? yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and... Um, uh, and uh, and then he started a completely new life. Volg uh, Olga's out of out of the out of the painting, and everything changes. But the but the new life, John, of course, is in a sense driven by the external realities of of his country finally collapsing on the on the kind of eighteenth of July, only two months after this, and this becomes the kind of image these posters that are translated into all the different languages, which are you see across Europe, but particularly everywhere in Madrid, and hard to take. They're appalling, frightening. But at the same time as this, he finds, in a sense, and this is where it all gets complex, because, John, this is this fantastic photograph of Dora. And Picasso, well. did he not tell you about, or, or was it Dora who told you about a certain kind of lore, as it were? The well, uh, um, Marie-Thérèse, uh, she had her baby. I think after she had her baby, uh, he, he, he wasn't so fascinated by her. And then he meets, he becomes very involved with the Surrealists. And Dora Ma, who is half French, half Yugoslav, comes into his life. And she'd previously been the mis mistress of, 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 um, of well, various people. Georges Bataille. And, and Bataille. And um, she's, she's been around a bit, and she knows all the... Uh, she's a very good photographer. Uh, she's a very intelligent woman. And she's absolutely the reverse of Marie-Thérèse, the previous, the girl who has found Gary Lafayette, who was simple, uh, totally devoted, and only interested in sort of outdoor sports and things. Dora was an intellectual, 
and had led a very surreal life. And she was, uh, she enjoyed suffering a little bit. And so, I mean, Picasso took advantage of that. <laughs> uh, and she is eternally the femme pleureuse in, 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 in these wonderful paintings. And Dora was a great friend of mine. I was enormously fond of her. But uh, she, uh, she, 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 uh, she was, she epitomized sorrow. And that's not good for um, uh, anybody. I mean, it, 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 um, it resulted in a, in a very bad nervous breakdown. But Picasso doted on, on, on her frailty, in a way, took advantage of it. And she enjoyed all this, too. So he, he twists her and turns her and beats her up. But he's always, he always loves her. Oops, what's don't, happened? Don't worry, don't worry. Um, he, 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 loves, he loves her. And, uh, and uh, later on, the next mistress is Francois Gillot, who is a very tough, very bright, uh, and rather a girl, very good painter, who he never managed to... Uh, get control of, ne never managed to... to well, in, in a sense, of course, he broke Dora, and Dora broke herself. I mean, she becomes, of course, in a sense, kind of symbolic of, of this painting in this period. In fact, she even allegedly painted parts of the markings on the horse of Guernica. Um, now, there's been a lot of new art history, and maybe some people in the room who are fans of it, who... who feel that biography and judgment on whether something is a masterpiece or not is a kind of irrelevant. The idea that kind of perhaps a postcard has the same status, they're all kind of texts in a sense. And I kind of don't, I'm not a great fan of that. And what I learned working with John particularly is that biography, getting the chronology right of the work, and, and John worked hard on trying to get me doing things, ducks in the right line and, and etc. But this idea of finding things, and, and we discovered a huge amount. I mean, first of all, when I was in that show with John in New York, walking around, and we saw that sauvetage, that rescue. And John said, well, of course, that, that, that you know, it gets reworked again in the image here of the central woman. And then I thought kind of lately have been reading an absolutely terrifying history of particularly post-war Spain and the first days of the Spanish Civil War. Things that when Picasso read the paper every single day, what he was getting as his food and water. It's a book called The Spanish Holocaust by Paul Preston. And it's a story which happened in the next door village to where I live. And it was always the total humiliation of women. And it was the shaving of the heads. So this fits into the story. It was kind of, I don't need to give you the details. It gets too much anyway. But this kind of abuse of everything before they just get lined up against a wall and shot. And what we have in this painting is, is, is also, I think that is creeping in here clearly. Uh, not creeping in, it's, it's, it's there up in the front. I mean, there's this extraordinary moment when Henry Moore uh, and I wish Sir Anthony Caro had been able to make it this evening but when Henry Moore goes and happens to be walking in the street in the middle of the time that Guernica is being painted and goes upstairs, Picasso asks him and Henry in his Yorkshire accent and Picasso in his Catalan French uh, kind of mixture 
trying to communicate, and he couldn't tell Henry Moore what was going on. So he ran off to the toilet, grabbed toilet paper, and stuffed it into the hand of this woman, and said, you know, and kind of mimed, this is what catastrophe is, when you don't even have time to do the necessary things. And it's kind of interesting because that was a very successful painting, and this painting, The Massacre in Korea, it's the first, well, you met Picasso, what, a week after this, yeah. John? But I think you should finish a little bit with the other one because it, it, I mean, the, the real thing which is so appalling is, is that what they did to the women, I mean, they in the village, I mean, they just rounded them up, shaved their heads, and gave them a purge, an enormous purge of sawdust and whatever it Castor was. Castor oil, yeah. Castor oil. And, 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 and then take, took their clothes off and, and chased them off to being shot. And Henry, Henry Moore, and they, in shame and agony and so on, and I think Henry Moore must have realized that when he stuck a piece of toilet paper on, on, onto this whole thing. And um, uh, it's... Uh, Dora... Uh, these, Dora told me that all, all these little... Uh, um, were added by her, and she always felt that the painting should be attributed to Pablo Picasso and Dora Mark. <laughs> and, uh, well, I, I, got, I got, when I saw Maya in Paris, she wanted also to be part of it. She said as a two-year-old, Picasso didn't mind if she just smudged around with her hands uh, on Guernica. But, but, John, this is when you well, met. Well, this no, is well, this met. no, but this, this, is, this, this is what I regard as Picasso's only dishonest painting. This painting was done <laughs> at the behest of the uh, French Communist Party, who were completely under the thumb of the Soviet uh, uh, communi uh, communists. And um, they wanted him to do, it was, at, uh, uh, it was the time of the Korean War, and they wanted him to do this, uh, these, these um, <coughs> evil, supposedly American soldiers with this sort of science fiction uh, guns and so on, shooting these Korean, uh, uh, massacring these Koreans who don't look very Korean to me, and um, and it he I think he hated doing it. It's a huge painting. Uh, I tried occasionally to talk about it uh, with him, and he he always he he hedged away. Uh, and as it happened, the first time I really went to see Picasso and 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 got to know him was in Valoris, where he was living with Francois Gillot, and uh, she'd gone off uh, on some communist jaunt. And he was alone, and Douglas Cooper and I, uh, he said, I'm, I'm going to show you what I've just done. Now, the whole series of paintings, and he said, this is what I think about the war. This, this is what I really feel about the war. And this series of paintings is called Jeu de Page, Pages, Page Boys Games. It's, in fact, children, children dressing up in armor. And if you look closely enough, uh, you'll see that inside the helmets and so on, there are not um, medieval um, soldiers. There are kids sort of playing around and, and, and um, playing, at, at, playing at war. And so interesting, I mean, that this is what the Communist Party has asked him to, to do. And it's, it's, it is uh, such an obvious bit of agit prop. I mean, it, 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 it's... Uh, uh, and especially on this, this, this enormous scale. And then... Uh, on the side, he's doing these these paintings, which are uh, so much more moving and more uh, interesting and lively. And um, 
I mean, uh, I, I saw it recently, John, in Spain, where it was put next well, to that one was Goya's, Goya's 3rd of May, yeah. the, the massacre yeah. in Korea. And it just, obviously, the Goya just blew it away. I mean, you know, there's... <laughs> what, there's you, saw no, that, you saw that? Yeah, 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 absolutely. A few years back. And, and, and I mean, let's, let's just move on very quick to about six years after this. We've got Dora's Law now beginning to work. Well, well I haven't given Dora's, Dora's Law. There's something that Dora Maar told me about having been the mistress and then having been got, got rid of, as it were. She said uh, that when the woman changes in Picasso's life, everything else changes. The house changes. Uh, the animals change. Uh, the circle of friends change, the poet changes, most important of all, because Picasso always had a sort of poet laureate in his life, and he was tremendously friendly to poets, he loved poets, and throughout his life, I mean, there were, there were a lot of poets, but most of the po surrealist poets, he thought were a bit dim and, and uh, <laughs> sentimental, and the surrealism of them was just a lot of silly... Um, uh, silly surrealist um, childishness uh, but he loved Reverdy particularly and and, um, uh, and 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 wrote his own poems as we saw but um, but if, if we move now John just to this wonderful photo John Douglas Cooper Pablo Picasso having what is it you're having your lunch up in the bedroom and the photographer is well, Jacqueline Picasso this is well it needs some explaining uh, Jacqueline Picasso, when she met when she met Picasso, uh, needed to have an operation, and uh, which he she didn't he didn't uh, want her to have, and she'd arrive um, <coughs> sort of green in the face, and I'd have to collapse, and uh, she'd collapse, and I'd take her and put her on my bed and have the operation. Oh, Pablo coming these other scary things and and, and uh, finally she collapsed and taken off to hospital and there she when she was back home she called up and, and asked Douglas Cooper and myself to to lunch and uh, so she the photograph was taken by Jacqueline in bed and the and uh, Picasso at, the, at this point is saying oh by the way Cocteau asked to come to lunch uh, and I told him, uh, I told him he couldn't come, and uh, but he's coming in for coffee. And John, for God's sake, don't let him embrace you. He's got a nasty skin, skin disease, something he caught from the Germans during the war. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, uh, and it was a, a little bit later than I mean, he'd already got rid of cocktail. But he, Cocteau had been the poet laureate from uh, 19, well, 1918 when Apollinaire dies, and then Cocteau had been the poet laureate until um, 1935, I suppose, yeah, 30, yeah. 34, when Eluard takes over and the Surrealists take over. But uh, um, I mean, he was so he was so cruel to Cocteau. And there, there, there by the way, is 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 um, Jack, Jacqueline. Around the same time that this uh, this little uh, lunch in her bedroom took place, um, if we just go on, I mean, one thing that neither John, neither Douglas, neither Picasso, 
I'll just go back, sitting around that table, new. Uh, this is 1957. We're looking at the spring of 57. And the Hungarian Revolution, October, November, had taken place. Picasso, the great symbol of the Communist Party. And what he didn't realize uh, was that he was, in a sense, being... His three best friends were his three informants. Uh, Hélène Parmelin, who was... Spying on him. She was... She was spying on him and, and, and uh, informing the KGB because obviously they were really worried that he would kind of decamp. And then there was this wonderful photographer who has taken great photographs of Picasso, David Douglas Duncan, who after a while, uh, he's been going to Picasso's house every day, snapping him away. And, and, and when he gets fancy costume like here with Sitting Bull's... Uh, wonderful thing and Picasso went around apparently all day long just kind of looking very grumpy as if he was surrounded by you know the guns and and, and the wild west and David Douglas Duncan writes a letter and I'll just kind of do it a little bit from memory to the vice president of the United States uh, Richard Nixon and this is not a recommendation for Erdogan scholars to the chancellor but he starts off with hey buddy um, I know this Picasso guy pretty well. Uh, he loves the Wild West. Uh, he's always talking about Hollywood. I reckon if we actually get him over here and we give him some horses and we take him to Wyoming and we show him how beautiful it is, we can win him over to the West. Now, that sounds cranky but and, and certainly not worthy of a re reply, but... John and I have seen the reply, and Nixon actually says, well, officially, of course, I can't because, you know, he's banned from the United States, but I'm sure that we can get him over here somewhere, and, and it, as long as it's kind of a little bit away from the East Coast, and Wyoming sounds good. Uh, well, that was that. And then on the other side, he had his best friend. I think you were actually in this picture, but we, you're just off camera. Uh, you were with Cocteau, Picasso... Yeah, we, we, we were all in the same row in this... In this but the central figure being Dominguin, who was his bullfighting friend, the great one who turns up in, this, in, in, the, uh, in the book by Hemingway. And Dominguin is, goes... When he's in Spain, he goes shooting with Franco every weekend. And it's kind of... This, I think, possibly he did know about Picasso... Uh, he certainly did know years later, that Dominguin was being used, manipulated by the regime to kind of find out what's going on in the Picasso household. And actually, do you think there's any chance of that we can spin him our way? Uh, you know, if he's prepared to go uh, to Wyoming, why not make it a little bit further to the right and get him to as a Franco supporter? And... It kind of almost works. Well, it doesn't almost work, but, I mean, Picasso gets wind of this idea of having a, an exhibition. And then Picasso... And you were here, John, sitting downstairs when he does this and takes on the great... You know, the greatest painting, possibly in art, but certainly <laughs> the greatest painting in Spanish painting by Velázquez. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is... Yeah, but before that, but, I mean... Uh, you want me to go back? Well, simply go back to... to um, Dominguin. To Dominguin, because um, Dominguin used to be around a lot. And Dominguin, I think um, uh, he was acting as... Um, he was very close to Picasso, and, and, and Picasso confided in him. And equally, he was close to Franco and, and, and the king. He used to go shooting with the king rather a lot. And uh, they, they um, all that... 
um, worked very well, and this uh, and. Okay, as you say, there was the if on the other side, there's the photographer trying to get the Americans interested, and then there were the Soviets trying to get uh, keep him under control through um, Hélène, Parmelin. Hélène Parmelin, who was the wife of a painter who had managed to they'd bor borrowed a part of Picasso's studio, and I used to go there and loathe Hélène Parmelin <laughs> because she seemed to be this, I mean eternally she was watching everything and on the make. And Picasso must have felt ill at ease because um, she was spying on it and writing about it too. There were these rather chatty books about life in Valoris and, and, and Picasso, which actually full of rather fascinating material. But uh, she was reporting to the KGB. And there was a time, I think about 10 years ago, when the KGB did open up some of their archives. And I wanted to go to Russia and see what might be available above all about this this period, and and um, uh, um, and uh, then they closed closed it all down again. But what was uh, 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 at the time of, of 1956, uh, 19, uh, uh, yeah. at the time of the Hungarian Revolution, um, there is tremendous pressure to bear uh, uh, on Picasso to uh, stay faithful to the Communist Party who were, and, the, and the Soviet Communist Party too, who were, who were putting down the revolution. Picasso hated that, obviously, but I, I saw he, he, he was very um, uh, unhappy at this time and worried and so on because he was terrified of getting involved. Picasso was not at all, he was infinitely courageous in the studio. But outside the studio, if he saw a policeman, he'd sort of shy away, or if he saw, <laughs> saw anybody in authority, didn't like people in authority. So he was, uh, he, and in a way, his, his communism was, was very, very simple. He said to me once, um, he said, I used to, when, when there was king in Spain, I was a, I was, um, a, a, I was a royalist and monarchist. And um, he said, now, I mean, there's a, there's a communist uh, government in France. Uh, I'm a communist. And I'm pro-communism because I feel passionately about peace and passionately about the poor and the poor. And those are the only two things which really um, uh, obsess me. And um, so... Uh, I, uh, I, I, think, I think, John, he must have known. I was just thinking about it now because Maya said that she she was by now what kind of uh, late teens and she always remembered that Picasso gave the Parmelands the beds with the springs that were broken and she said always get the crappiest beds in Valerie's went to the Parmelands um, but then you were downstairs when this was being done the abominable snowman was that was Picasso well, totally well when Picasso started on this great series of, of Las Meninas um uh, he, God knows when he, 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 he was working on a series of major works, he became very inaccessible. And uh, you, you wouldn't see much of him and better avoid him because he'd be in very bad temper and, and so on. And uh, so I used to keep Jacqueline company downstairs and his studio was upstairs. And we could hear him 
banging about. I've never known so much noise and things knocking over and cursing. And, and uh, <laughs> he didn't have studio assistance. I mean, he did everything he could by himself, um, shifting huge uh, canvases. And, and, as he, and the only person he really liked using as an assistant was, was the woman at the, t- at the time. And uh, she had to wash the brushes. And, and uh, there weren't lots of flunkies doing anything very much. And so I'd sit downstairs with, with, uh, with Jacqueline, and she said, listen to him, l'abominable homme des neiges, the, the <laughs> abominable snowman. And, uh, and then out came these, this series of absolutely amazing paintings in, in which uh, there are so many different kinds. Uh, we, we, have, you, have you got that, uh, the Dali thing? No, I, mean, I haven't, uh, sorry, John. Because the, 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 he, he gives Velasquez... Dali's terrible moustache. Can you see it there? <laughs> and there are so many things because we think it's not, never one side. I mean, he always puts in something jokey, something disconcerting. And um, there's an, uh, another painting, and he showed it to me, and I said, what the hell has this got to do with, with Las Meninas? And it was a, of a boy uh, playing a piano with his hands splayed like that. And Picasso said, don't you remember this gesture? And it's the lady-in-waiting at the, on the list, last minute, you know, she's putting the, her hands on the skirt. To, um, and so he'd take a gesture of, of, to do with elegance and, and prettiness and, and transform it into something totally different. And it had a kind of rhyme through the centuries and... and uh, 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 the, 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 this great work is and it's full of these things and I love the, the, the standing figure at the back uh, and also things which uh, these great hooks are they hanging, the hooks yeah, hang, yeah, yeah, hanging down which you don't really see in the Velasquez at all I don't know what, I mean they're there but so faintly no it becomes, but, it becomes rather threatening but this was this was his Desperate sort of anguish for Spain, wanting to have an exhibition in Spain, uh, signing up to do this, well, not signing up, but agreeing to do it, and then not doing it, and trying to think himself in Spain. And around this time, uh, he took a a party of us for three days to Perpignan, where there was a a rather suitable lady who was madly in love with him, Comtesse de Lazerne, and she's married to a husband who was very proud of having... Uh, her wife, his wife, having a Picasso as a lover, <laughs> and um, <laughs> so in this huge the Hotel Lazerme in Perpignan, great deal of room for all the friends, and we all went there. And uh, uh, but there were two other women uh, in, involved. There was a um, uh, there, were, there was the uh, a, a gypsy girl who'd been adopted by by a painter, and there was Jacqueline, and. I saw immediately that Jacqueline, who, who was the, had worked as a, in the pottery shop where, in Cannes, where Picasso's pottery was sold, and she uh, was clearly, she was prepared to do anything for him. And uh, she was the, in a way, she became the second wife because she was the only woman who really could convince him that she was prepared to die on the altar of his art. And this sounds dramatic and so on, but that is pretty much what happened. 
Um, she, uh, she did anything he wanted. She, um, she led the most terrifying life in that um, she had to, everything had to be done by 10.30 in the morning, which is when he woke up. So, I mean, she had to go to the dentist, the bank, buy the vegetables, do whatever it is, and then the rest of the day, look after him, cook for him, and then at 3, 4 in the morning, he might go to sleep and start, start working. And so she took to the bottle and became more and more, um, uh, in a way, more and more of a problem. But uh, in doing so, in, she became the dream subject for his work because he could do any with, anything with her. I mean, whatever he did was fine with her. And she is uh, uh, set up as a sort of goddess at one moment and then as a sort of slut the next and then... Uh, but he's, it's as if he's sort of, uh, all, he's there all the time, putting her through these things. And, um, uh, John, we could carry on talking like this forever. Okay. Um, are we, are we, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and uh, what I want to do is kind of just finish on this image, bringing back the strong gaze, the, the, the coal black eyes, and this last image of Picasso... I think it's, it's, it's pretty well the last painting he ever painted, isn't it? It's the last thing he ever did. And, and it's this incredible self-portrait, which is done within a week or two of his death. And I do think it's one of the most amazing uh, um, self-portraits. It's intensely moving. And it's good, with the, with, I think it looks great with this other early photograph. I mean, he didn't spare himself either, did he? He was petrified of death and didn't write a will for that reason. And this is that kind of Spanish obsession mm. with death as well, a little bit coming out here where we started with those images of Casa Gamas as well. Mm. I mean, we've, we've missed out or we've left behind. We've left out a hell of a lot, I'm afraid. <laughs> Lucky for you. <laughs> but... Um, Maybe um, Mika will allow me to come back and give another lecture and fill in some of the gaps. like to do a vote of thanks. I mean, I could have listened to that all night, and I'm sure that we, we all feel that way. Um, I recently attended a very small and fine Picasso exhibition at the Courtauld Institute in London, and I went around it thinking, is there anything else that anybody can say about Picasso that we don't already know? And um, I can't say the number of things I've learned tonight about Picasso that I didn't already know. But um, I can say I've seen two very ugly paintings by Picasso that I didn't know about. <laughs> um, I've always been fascinated by Dora Maar. And now that I know that she co-produced Guernica, I like her even more than I used to. And I've never associated Picasso with the Wild West before. And I think that was fascinating, too. Um, I think that we all enjoyed that enormously, Sir John. And Geis, you, your dialogue was fantastic. It was a wonderful way to, to explore Picasso's life and work. 
And I just wanted to say on behalf of everyone here that we really are grateful for you coming to um, Erskine House and giving this lecture. And we do hope you'll come back again. And guys, to you as well. And thank you very much. Thank you.